from his birth to his death, the life of Jesus Christ is marked by humility. From leaving the glory of heaven to becoming a man, from being born in a stable and never having a permanent home, and from healing the sick to offering his own life to a shameful death, humility has been evident in the life of Jesus. But surely one of the greatest displays of the humility of Christ is seen in the final hours before his death. Those hours spent in the Garden of Gethsemane in deep prayer to the Father when he willingly surrendered his will to the Father's. Jesus had declared this willingness long before the reality of death was upon him. For example, in John 10, while referring to himself as the good shepherd, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge... I have received from my Father. The surrender of Jesus is an act of his heart's obedience and was in keeping with the plan of God. The portion of Scripture before us this morning in Mark 14 is rich with application to followers of Jesus. But I will draw your attention to only two ways, two ways that we should be eternally grateful for the willing surrender of Jesus. Number one, we should be eternally grateful to Jesus for drinking the cup of God's wrath, which our sin deserved. And to do it willingly. The cup that the Lord Jesus refers to drinking in this passage of scripture is none other than the cup of the wrath of God. The gospel is good news. It's the best news ever. But the good news doesn't mean anything unless you understand how bad the bad news really is. For example, the good news that your children are now safe means infinitely more when they were previously trapped in a burning house. And so it is with the gospel. The bad news is that every one of us is a sinner who deserves the wrath of God. But the good news is that Jesus drank that cup of wrath on our behalf. He willingly drank it for us in our place so that you and I would not have to be condemned forever. 
Before we actually look at the way that Jesus prayed, I want you to introduce you to this theological concept that we find in the scriptures. That is, that the wrath of God is referred to as a cup that is poured out upon the wicked and that Jesus is the one who drank that cup for us. Six truths about the wrath of God. Number one, God's wrath is his holy hatred for sin and his will to punish it. God is the only perfectly holy and just God. Only he can display anger in a way that is always perfectly righteous and just and fully under control and is according to his nature. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So his righteousness and justice lead him to display his wrath against all violators of his holiness and justice. There are many examples in the Bible of how God displays his wrath. But since we know that God's wrath is directed against sin, then we need to remember what sin is. Sin is any violation of the character of God. Sin is anything that is contrary to the very nature and character of our holy God. Sin is any defiance of God's authority or the authority structures that he has put in place for our good. Sin is any desire contrary to the purity of God's holiness. So this morning, test yourself. God's law was given to us to teach us what sin is so that we would be driven to the only one who can save us from it. Let's just use the Ten Commandments this morning to test ourselves. First commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So let me ask you, have you ever preferred anyone or anything more than God? Is anything in your life more important than he is? You shall not make for yourself an idol. Commandment number two. Have you ever created your own image of God? Your own concept of what what you think God is like? Not using the scriptures, but using what you want God to be like so that he is in keeping with your lifestyle. Sometimes people make choices to do the things they really want to do and then they try to find a way to put God into that image they have created so that they feel justified. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Have you ever misused the name of Jesus the name of God. Have you used either one in a disrespectful, careless way? 
Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you spend the Lord's day on yourself? On your own earthly pleasures, leaving no room for God? Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Have you ever spoken disrespectfully to your parents? Have you ever not honored them in your heart? Have you ever disobeyed them, lied to them, rolled your eyes at them? Have you refused to submit to God's authority structures that he put in place for your good? Commandment six, you shall not murder. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Jesus says that's, that's what murder is. That's where murder begins. Have you ever been resentful and bitter, hanging on to anger for a long time until it takes root in your life and begins to poison not just you, but the people around you? Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Have you ever had an immoral thought or broken your marriage vows? Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Have you ever gained any material thing dishonestly through cheating, withholding, or stealing, or being partially honest, not fully. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Have you ever altered the truth even slightly for your own benefit? Commandment ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Have you ever desired something that belongs to someone else and and becoming envious in your heart that it's theirs and not yours? Well, James 2.10 says that every one of us in this room is guilty. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, James says. So every one of us is guilty. Every one of us has broken these commandments many times over. And that means then that, that even if we, we really did our best and throughout our whole life we, we only disobeyed one small part of one of those commandments, James is saying you're guilty of the whole body of God's law because all of God's law is a portrait of his holiness and his character. So the verdict is, is clear. The verdict is that we are guilty sinners who deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's anger to be poured out against us. That's what I deserve. And that's what you deserve. And that's what the Bible tells us. You have displays of the wrath of God in Scripture. For example, in the Old Testament, Exodus 32 
While Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, Aaron led the nation into idolatry in the worship of the golden calf. And in response, God said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. But thankfully, Moses was a meek and humble man and he interceded for the people of God and God's wrath was turned away. But we also see the wrath of God in the New Testament. We see Jesus displaying the wrath of God. Twice he cleansed the temple in holy anger. He drove the money changers out and he overturned their tables. What these examples show us then is this, that the wrath of God is not a sudden, uncontrolled outburst of anger. Not like our anger usually is. But it's a steady hatred against anything that offends him. It's against his nature. It is his holy hatred for sin and his will to punish it. There's a second truth. God's wrath is often portrayed as a cup being emptied. The very first occurrence of this is in Psalm 75, in verses 7 and 8, where it says, But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Jeremiah 25, God promises wrath to Judah. Jeremiah has a vision of the Lord holding a cup of wrath, and and Jeremiah is told of of, God. that, that God wants the nations to drink of this wrath. And the first ones to drink the bitter brew will be Jerusalem. The wrath of God is his holy hatred for sin and his will to punish it. And it's often portrayed as a cup. But truth number three begins the good news, and that is that Jesus was appointed to drink the cup of God's wrath. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Son of God came to earth and became a man. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who we'll see in a few minutes, in the garden with Jesus, they didn't understand this. And so in Matthew 20, in response to their request to occupy the most important seats in the kingdom of God, Jesus answers and says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Obvious answer, no way. No way could they ever drink that cup that only Jesus The righteous, sinless Son of God was equipped to drink this cup of wrath. Peter also didn't understand. John 18, it tells us in the the garden when Jesus was arrested, 
Peter was his impulsive self and he took out a sword and lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus says to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Number four, God's wrath presently remains on unbelievers. This is a really hard and sobering truth. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the wrath of God is not something that one day will be experienced by unbelievers. Not, not only that, but also there's a sense in which his wrath is right now being experienced by those who turn away from Jesus. In other words, unbelievers remain in a state of separation. God views them as his enemies. And therefore, Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands, into the hands of the living God. Truth number five, God's wrath against unbelief will be fully poured out at the end of the age. So Jesus showed his wrath while he was on earth, but he will do it again at the end of the age in the fullness of his justice. And and his father honors him for this. It says in Hebrews 1, Of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. Number six, those who trust in Jesus Christ as sin-bearing Savior and Lord of all, are delivered from the wrath of God. This is the glorious news. That every one of us here deserves the wrath of God. But Jesus so loved us, the Father so loved us, he sent Jesus. Jesus so loved us that he remained on that cross until the work was complete so that you and I could be delivered from this judgment that's why ephesians 2 3 says that believers were once children of wrath no more no more are we children of wrath in jesus we are safe and secure and delivered and this is because in the mystery of God, God on the cross displayed both his justice and his love. His justice, which had to be satisfied, and his love for all of us who have gone astray. And Paul says that on the cross, God showed his righteousness so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So when we turn from our sin and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God justifies us. He declares us righteous. The wrath is removed from us. Jesus became the object of all of the wrath of God that had been stored up from the Garden of Eden, all the way to the cross. 
So what do we conclude from this? Well, let me get really personal. What this means is that Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was reserved for me. My sin killed Jesus. And Jesus drank the cup of wrath that was reserved for you. You killed Jesus. We all did. But the mercy of God is so abundant toward us. How do we respond to truths like this that are so sobering? We have to repent. We have to repent of our sin and run to Jesus for mercy because in him alone we find forgiveness and safety. In him alone we find our refuge. And the reason that this is possible is because God took his wrath out on his son in our place. Jesus willingly drank that cup of wrath so that you and I would not have to. And for this, we should be eternally grateful. Now, knowing that about the wrath of God and how the wrath of God is pictured in Scripture as a cup, now you read this account very differently. And you understand it in profound ways. So verse 32 of Mark 14 says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. Well, the word Gethsemane means oil press, which means then that this was a place where there were a lot of olive trees and probably an olive press right there in the garden, which John tells us that there was a garden there. And here the very life of Jesus would begin to be pressed out of him through the full surrender of his will. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. They went off away from the rest. And began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Look at in the next three verses, just the references to the agony that our Savior endured for us. He was greatly distressed and troubled. This is mental anguish. The heaviness, the weight of knowing that he was about to become the Lamb of God who would endure all of the wrath of God against sin. And he said to them, verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. There there is a depth of grief that Jesus experienced looking forward to the cross. Just a matter of hours His soul was so overcome by grief, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch, he says. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. 
So this grief and this agony that was in his mind and in his heart and in his soul now affects his body and he falls on the ground and prays, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now Jesus, of course, knows the plan. He was part of the making of the plan and eternity passed. But he also knows that God can do anything. And so in his humanity, he says, Father, if there is another way to save mankind, let it be. But if not, let it be. Let your will be done. Luke tells us, Luke was a physician, so Dr. Luke tells us in his gospel that an angel came and strengthened Jesus at this time. And, and that Jesus sweat drops of blood. This is actually a physical condition caused by extreme grief and agony whereby the blood vessels in one's forehead burst and mingle with the water of sweat. So intense was his agony. And he says, Abba, Father, my Father, dear Father, all things are possible. For you, remove this cup from me, yet not what I, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Surrendering his will in his humanity. Fully surrendering every ounce of his being to this plan. He returns and he finds them sleeping and he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Couldn't you pray for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's another important application, but I don't think it's a chief one here in this passage, but definitely an important application for us that prayer is a weapon against temptation. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. What does he mean by that? Well, he means this. The hour has come. It's enough. The hour has come. It's time. It's time. The time that has been predicted, the time that has been planned, the hour that I've been talking about has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We should be eternally grateful to Jesus. Eternally grateful that he drank the cup of wrath for us. We should be so thankful for his willingness, his humility, his, his surrender. There's a second application I want you to see in the rest of the passage. 
That is, we should be eternally grateful to Jesus for offering himself in our place. The guiltless for the guilty. And again, to do it willingly. To do it willingly. You see in this passage when he's arrested, there is no fighting back. He could have. He could have called down a legion of angels and wiped them all out instantly. When, when he spoke the voice and identifying that he was the one they were looking for, uh, John's gospel says that they fell down backwards onto the ground. Just the very speaking of the eternal word of God. He could have taken out all of his enemies instantly. But he didn't. He knew he had to offer himself John tells us that Judas knew of this place. He knew of this garden because Jesus had often been there with his disciples. So between the time in which Judas left the Last Supper and then the rest enjoyed it with Jesus, Judas went off and did his thing and sold Jesus. But again, the the secrecy that Jesus kept as far as the exact location of some of these events kept Judas at bay until the hour had come even his betrayal couldn't happen prior to that appointed time even the betrayal of the son of God was under the sovereign control of God and that's encouraging to us isn't it if you've been betrayed in some way by a family a friend family member a spouse a parent even all of that somehow is under the sovereign control of God Immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. In other words, don't let him get away. (laughs) He's a tricky fellow. Don't let him get away. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now this is very interesting. Because Judas only ever calls Jesus Rabbi. Never in the Gospels does he call him Lord. Because Jesus was never Judas's Lord. He was just another Jewish rabbi. Never in his heart had Judas fallen on his face and humbled himself before this Lord. He kissed him. Matthew tells us that Jesus replied, Friend, why have you come? Imagine that. Can you imagine that? Jesus looking into the eyes of Judas after he says, Rabbi, friend. Why have you come? Well, of course Jesus knew why he had come, but it's almost as if Jesus was giving him another opportunity to repent before it was eternally too late. 
when he came, he said, Rabbi, he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. And then Peter, impulsive Peter, does what Peter would do. Draws a sword, cuts off the ear of Malchus, but Dr. Luke again comes through and tells us that Jesus touched the ear of Malchus and healed him. Jesus said in verse 48, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Other gospels say, I was around all the time in public teaching and you come at me now? Day after day I was with you in the temple. You didn't seize me, but underline this phrase, let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of this had to happen this way to fulfill the scriptures. Again, Jesus affirming the authority and the inerrancy, the inspiration of the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. We talked about that last week. And then Mark's account just ends with this anecdotal uh, account of a young man following him and then they tried to, the enemies tried to seize him and grabbed his, his linen garment and off he ran away naked. Many commentaries believe that this was Mark and that's why he didn't name him in his modesty. He, he, is, he is finding a way to include himself in this whole gospel story but not in a way that identifies him. Oh, what, what an account of Scripture. But what's the main point here? The main point is that Jesus surrendered his will to the Father's plan. It was revealed in the scriptures and Jesus surrendered himself into the hands of his enemies and he did this in order to bring us to God. That's why he did this. Let me take you to one verse that I absolutely love in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the gospel in one verse. If you understand this and believe this, then you understand the gospel and you Believe the gospel, and you can then communicate the gospel to others. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So clear, so simple, so beautiful in its display of the surrender of Jesus and what it accomplished for us. 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the guiltless for the guilty. Why? That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the gospel. Jesus is the one perfectly holy God who offered himself in our place so that we could be brought to God. And that is what you must believe. That is what I must believe. That is the only way for us 
to escape the wrath of God. So my question is very simple to you this morning. And that is this, have you turned to this Savior? Have you turned from your wrath-deserving sin and trusted in this glorious, humble Savior who gave himself for you? He did all of that to save you. If you have not, then today is the day. Today is the day to turn to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. For you do not know what more opportunities God may graciously give to you. Do not waste a moment. Run to Jesus now. Tell him you know you're sinful. Tell him you know you deserve the wrath of God. But tell him you trust in him as the one who took all of that for you. Believe in him. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus, oh, we want you to be saved. We want you to know our Savior so badly. When the service is over, you can come and find one of us. There'll be an elder and his wife up here in the front to my left, your right. We'd love to talk to you, answer any questions that you may have so that you may know this Savior that we love and we sing about. The one who surrendered his will to the will of the Father so that we could be forgiven and eternally saved. Oh, would you turn to him today if you have never done so? Oh, Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And Father, lift up the glory of your Son before us that we may come to him. We pray all this in his glorious name, the one who alone is worthy. Amen.